Amen. Amen. And so as we do that, as we gather our offerings, uh, you've probably noticed something a little different, uh, and that uh, we have been blessed by uh, a new creation here, something that we have added to our church sanctuary, and um, it's just something that's been in the talks for a long time, and what a blessing it is to be able to have, um, you know, to have people at church that are willing to give and to sacrifice their time and their talents. And um, so I just want to give a shout out to the to the um, the people that were really instrumental in kind of putting this together, Brother Bill Person, of course, and his just using his gifts and talents, and Fred and others that helped him put this together after service. If you want to come up and check it out. It's really cool. I mean, it's just a stage, but it's it's so much more than that. It means a lot. And you know what? It's also indicative of the fact that our church is growing. But we always say that we want to grow from the inside out. And part of our learn, grow, serve is that we serve and use the talents and gifts that God has given us, you know. And um, it really even provides a, a great segue into um, our discussion. Because last week in our study in the Gospel of Mark, if you remember, if you were here or you listened to it online, you remember that we saw Jesus sending out the twelve. He had his twelve disciples, those closest to him, and he sent them out in pairs, if you remember that. And it was time for them to move on from being just spectators of the ministry to being participants. And he sent them out to present the gospel, to bring the good news of the kingdom and to preach repentance and to bring healing and to bring hope to people. See, but what was so important in that whole uh, passage of Scripture that we looked at was that, you know what, we are in this together. And God sent out the disciples in pairs so they could keep each other accountable, so that when one was weak, the other could come along with his strength. Perhaps even, somebody mentioned to me, maybe when one of them was casting out a demon, the other one was on his knees praying. Do you see, but even just the fact that we have people at church that are willing to use their talents to, um, you know, to do things on a volunteer basis to help the church. And whether it's something aesthetic or something that we, you know, something necessary and just the function of the building or whether it's leading a ministry, whether it's helping to set up for a yard sale or whether it's helping to lead a missions trip to um, inner city Brazil, we are all in this together. And so that's the model that Jesus gives us. And so what a great reminder of just sitting here on something that's brand new and that, you know what, we are to serve, but we start here by serving one another. And you know, in a spiritual sense, we have been given spiritual gifts. Specifically, as believers, we all have at least least one in that moment of salvation, primarily to edify the church, which means to to hold up each other and to bring each other closer to the Lord. And so, um, so we're continuing to do that. And so that was the message for last week. That in our study of the Gospel of Mark, which is simply titled, The Way of Jesus, Mark really lays out what it looks like to be a disciple. But this morning, we look at our passage, which is in Mark chapter 6. It's verses 14 to 29, so you can turn to it in your Bibles. It, in a moment, will be up on the screen for you as usual, and you can follow along there. 
But in our passage today, it kind of doesn't seem to fit. It kind of doesn't seem to make sense because last week we looked at Jesus sending out the 12. And so our gospel writer, Mark, is laying this out in a certain way. Of course, being inspired by the Spirit to do so. But Mark, you see, is a special kind of author. He is one who really wants to be on that way to Jesus And he really wants to get to the story of what we call the Passion Week, the last few days of Jesus' life and ministry. But in order to get there, he's got to set the stage, right, and tell us some stories that are so important to uh, giving us a foundation for who Jesus is, the other people that play a part in this story. And what he does is after telling us about Jesus sending out the twelve and committing them to actually be a part of the ministry, he then kind of plops this really interesting story right in the middle. See, this is the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. Now, I would think, you know, that um, if you're a topical preacher, like if I would have just kind of picked topics and every week preach on something different, I probably wouldn't land on preaching this story. Hey, let me tell them about how they asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. That'll be good. Man, we'll give him the gospel through that. Of course, you'll hear it. But you know, one of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible, expository preaching we call it, is that we don't skip anything. And so if it's there, it's there for a reason, right? And so here's the way it looks. So I'll read it in a moment. But this story of the beheading of John the Baptist and and King Herod and his wife Herodias and this big party that happens in the palace, Mark kind of puts it right in the middle because after this, what we'll look at in two weeks is we see the disciples coming back from their missionary journey to Jesus and reporting all of the amazing things that were happening. And so it would seem logical that that Mark would kind of go from him sending them out to them coming right back to say, look at all the great stuff that happened. But right in the middle, Mark kind of puts in parentheses this story and you'll see as we read it and just highlight a few things in our time together this morning, why Mark specifically wants to tell this story. So let's read it together. And I'm going to step down and pick this up. See, I couldn't do that before, but now I can. Isn't that awesome? Right? Um, Here's the, the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. And I think as we read it, you'll also notice, in a way... It really doesn't say much about John the Baptist. This story is more about Herod and his wife, but even more so, it's about Jesus. So here it is. This is Mark 6, 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it. So we have to stop there. What did he hear of? He heard of all the amazing things that Jesus and his disciples were doing. See, remember? He had just sent them out, so they went out two by two, and they were casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching repentance. So King Herod gets wind of it. So that's where we pick up. So King Herod heard of it, all the great things. For Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, 
whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had, who had sent and seized John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. That was Herod hearing the words of John the Baptist. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half of my kingdom. So she went out, and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So we all encouraged already? We doing well? What a story that Mark gives us. And I think you'll see there's just like three things really that I want to show. But what's important is that we get some overview, some kind of context and background about the players in this story. So you remember, of course, John the Baptist... And he was the last of really the Old Testament uh, prophets. We meet him in the New Testament. Remember we went through Malachi and we see that um, he ends with saying that there would be one coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And see, the Jewish people believed it would be Elijah. But it seemed clear that John the Baptist was that one. The one that they were looking for. Okay, to be that Elijah. And so John the Baptist came preparing the way of the Lord Jesus. And he came preaching a message of repentance. Remember that? So we're kind of familiar with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist went around speaking the truth. And so here what had happened was he spoke the truth to Herod and said, you are married to your brother's wife. And this is wrong, not only morally, but it breaks the Jewish law. And so he didn't quite like that, but he kind of liked John the Baptist's teaching. He was kind of interested in hearing the truth, but didn't want to do anything about it. So he put him in jail for two reasons. I think he put him in jail so that um, he could keep tabs on him and listen to him whenever he wanted. But also it said to keep him safe from whom? From Herodias. So Herodias was his wife. So I want to give you a little bit of background. So that's John the Baptist. So here's a little bit of a, a family tree of Herod. And um, if you think that you have a dysfunctional family, let me just explain this to you. So 
The Herod that many of us are, are most aware of and familiar with is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the leader in Rome who was um, put over the, the, that area uh, in the Middle East there in Galilee and, and uh, Palestine when Jesus was born. So you remember there was the Herod who was afraid that there would be somebody who would come and take his throne and take his power away. So he had the decree put out that all of the, the male babies would, uh, would be killed and murdered. And so that's why Joseph and Mary went on their pilgrimage, right, for the census, and they had to leave, and, and all of that stuff. So that was Herod the Great. And so he had children, at least three boys and a girl that we know of. But he actually killed two of his sons, because they were the ones that were next in line for his throne. He was quite a paranoid leader to kill his own sons. One of those sons, Aristobulus, had married a woman named Herodias. So when Herod the Great killed him, Herodias went and married her brother-in-law, who was Herod Philip. See, so her husband was killed by her father-in-law, Herod the Great. She went and then married Philip her husband's, her dead husband's brother. But then the Herod we're talking about in this story is Herod Antipas, and he was the leader uh, on the overseer at this time, or Herod the Tetrarch. The reason he's called Herod the Tetrarch is Tetrarch really means broken into four. So when Herod the Great died in his will, it said that his uh, realm and region should be broken into four parts among three of his sons and one of his daughters. And so Herod Antipas, the one in our story here, is Herod the Tetrarch. He is one of them. And so what happens is he's married, but he then gets to, kind of gets introduced to Herodias, and he seduces her, and they kind of fall in love and have this affair. And so she divorces Herod Philip. He divorces his wife, and they get married. So she had been married to one who was killed, and then she marries the brother Philip, divorces him to then marry this other brother. You follow me so far? And so, right, so Herod, the second husband, Herod Philip, right? Herod Philip and Herodias had one child, a daughter named Salome. She is the one that dances. So she is not the daughter of Herod Antipas and Herodias. She is the daughter of Herodias and her husband that she divorced, and that is Herod Philip. And so she is the one that now dances. And so we see now Herod the Great, but in our story, Herod Antipas, and Herodias, who is his wife, but really also his sister-in-law and his niece. See that? Okay? So that's who Herodias is. Uh, just a wonderful, you know, close-knit family. <clears throat> and so Salome is the daughter that we read about, the daughter of Herodias and Philip, the one she divorced, and she comes in to dance at this party. It's a big, lavish party full of debauchery. And um, she comes in to dance. And what we see really is Herodias is quite horrendous. She is evil to the core. See, not only her husband at the time now, Herod Antipas, that he wants to be king, 
He's called king, but he's not really a king. He wants to be king. Herodias wants to be queen even worse. And she is fighting her way, stepping over whomever she has to, killing whomever to get the power that she wants. Even to the point where John the Baptist, this is where it all comes together, is standing in her way. Why? Because John the Baptist stood for the truth. He spoke the truth to Herod and to Herodias, and she didn't like it. Because she knew that this was a stumbling block, an obstacle. So she wanted for a long time, so badly, to have John the Baptist killed. And here, she finds a way. But what does she do? She uses her own daughter, who most scholars say was a young teenager, 14, 15, who by all accounts is very beautiful, and she goes in and dances in a very provocative way before this large palace full of drunk men, including her stepfather. So Herod Antipas then says, what an awesome dance. I mean, how vulgar and how disgusting is that, that he has his stepdaughter there dancing, and the mother is orchestrating all of this. She has basically just sacrificed her own daughter, who was 14 or 15, sacrificed her innocence, sacrificed her modesty, all what for personal gain? This is the family that we're talking about. This is the same Herod, by the way, that Jesus faces, that Pilate sends him to before he dies. It's the same Herod, if you remember the story, when Pilate doesn't want to do anything about Jesus, and he sends him to Herod, and Herod, you remember, makes fun of him and mocks Jesus, spits on him, puts a robe on him. That's this same, this same Herod and his wife Herodias. And so in our story we see that Mark takes the time to give us all the details. Okay, The details maybe we don't want to know, but Mark says this is important. This is a flashback, just so we have some context. It doesn't say that at this point, after the twelve were sent out, that he was killed. Because it says that, that um, Herod, paranoid as he is, he believes that Jesus is John the Baptist. Raised back to life. So he's back, Mark is actually going back and saying this is what had happened. See, Herod had John the Baptist beheaded because he gave that word to the daughter Salome dancing. Can you just imagine that? He was so enticed by his stepdaughter dancing that he said, I'll give you anything you want. You made us all so happy. Up to half the kingdom. So she, just being a teenager, goes back to her mom and says, what should I ask for? And what does she say? John the Baptist's head on a platter. Finally, it was her time. And so that's the story. That's what's going on here. See, but Mark gives us this example, I think, first and foremost, to show us that there is a huge difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. The first comparison of three that we'll make. Do you see... Right before this story, Mark is saying, look, Jesus sent out the twelve, what? Preaching the kingdom. and he preached, They preached the kingdom, bringing good news of repentance and healing people. That is a picture of the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring. The one that John the Baptist led the way for. They're both preaching repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what is Jesus saying? It's not the kind of kingdom you're used to. 
my kingdom is not of this earth, he says, and look. And so Mark kind of gives us a picture. You want this kind of kingdom? Here's a snapshot picture of the kingdom of man, or the kingdom of this world. And so we see the worst of the worst. There is this big party in the palace. And everything I just described, that's a picture of the world in which we live. And I think that is what Mark is trying to say. Because you know what? He says, if you're going to be a disciple, remember the whole book of Mark is Mark telling us how to be disciples. You want to be a disciple? It sounds exciting when Jesus sends out the 12. They're going out two by two and they're so successful. Yes, sign me up. He says, hold on. You remember that I told you that when Jesus sent them out, he said, some people will receive you. But when people don't receive you, what did he tell them to do? He said last week, shake the dust off your feet. Know that you planted the seed. You told the truth. The rest is in God's hands. He says, look, John the Baptist, he told the truth. Look what happened to him. It is the cost of discipleship. So we keep that in context that Mark is teaching us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So he paints this picture for us of the stark contrast between the kingdom of God, this beautiful kingdom filled with healing and restoration, put up against the kingdom of man which is full of debauchery and destruction and deceit and death. I mean, how much more of a contrast can you get? But we also see that Mark is showing us a picture, a future picture of Jesus' death. There's a lot of similarities between Jesus and John, and it's actually no wonder that Herod Antipas kind of thought, yes, just Jesus that I'm hearing about doing all these miracles, it has to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Why? He was paranoid. And he felt guilty about killing him. He kind of liked hearing the truth. He didn't want to kill him. But he made that rash, quick decision to give the, the, the girl dancing whatever she wanted. She called for his head on the platter and he had to do it. In his mind, he had to do it. And so, <clears throat> King Herod makes that decision. But in Mark telling us this story, he says, look, you know what? Jesus, the one who sent out the twelve, the one who is calling us to be his disciples... Jesus is also going to die at the hands of a ruler who is so inept and so corrupt and so evil. One who is innocent will die for the truth. That's what John the Baptist did. That's what Jesus is going to do. It's a picture of what's about to happen to Jesus. And who's this picture for? It's for us. It's for disciples. See, let's remember what is a disciple. A disciple is very simply a follower, a learner. We say learn, grow, serve. That's what disciples do, right? Disciples are learning the truth and growing in their faith and then serving others. Last week we saw that picture. They went to serve. But disciple, discipleship is simply this. At that moment of salvation, when you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are putting your faith and trust in Him. You have then accepted that free gift of salvation. That's the gospel. See, that's in the context of Jesus' death and resurrection. But then in the context of Jesus' life and ministry, we then have to make that choice. Do we want to be disciples? See, I don't believe that once you are saved, you're automatically a disciple. Discipleship is a choice. It's a commitment that you make. And so every disciple is a believer, but 
not every believer has made that commitment to be a disciple. And so Mark makes it very clear that we are to count the cost. Doesn't Jesus teach that all the time? In a moment we're going to look at some other scriptures that show that. But Jesus over and over again teaches us, and Paul backs him up as well, that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means that we make a commitment. You've probably heard that silly illustration, but it really, it really brings that point home of the, the pig and the hen. And they are in this um, barn together on a farm, and they're walking through town together. I don't know why, but it's just a story, right? And they come across this church, and the church says, Help us feed the hungry. And so the hen looks at the pig and says, Hey, I know what we can do. Let's go and serve them bacon and eggs for breakfast. And so the pig kind of thinks about it, being a pig, you know, not so smart. And he looks at the hen, he says, Hey, wait a second. For you... All that's taking is a contribution. For me, that's a big commitment. See? But the idea is this. There's a big difference between just kind of giving your contribution to Jesus and making your commitment to Him. What does He expect of us? What does Jesus call His disciples to do? Trust and obey. He says, come follow me. Does He not? He says that to his disciples he says that to us so as believers we are to make that decision do we want to be disciples do we want to be followers where we are learning and growing where we are making a commitment what is required of disciples does jesus not say that we are to deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow him jesus knew what the death of john the baptist meant Actually, in Matthew's account of this story, in Matthew's account, there's one added verse, and it's uh, Matthew 14, 13. It says at the end of Matthew's account of this story of John the Baptist beheading, it says, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. See that? Jesus was overcome with emotion, not only because he lost a good friend in John the Baptist, but he knew what it meant for him. See, it was a picture of what was to come. And Jesus had to go off alone because we see there is certainly a foreshadowing of the ultimate end of Jesus. But see, what also we see is the comparison of not only John the Baptist and Jesus and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, but look at The comparison of John the Baptist with Herod and his wife Herodias. Because again, Mark is trying to get get across to us, look, this simple message. This is our big idea for this morning. Discipleship has a cost. Salvation is free. Do you believe that? It's free to us. It costs Jesus everything. Salvation is a free gift. Discipleship costs us. It costs us what? We sacrifice our time. We sacrifice uh, our money. We sacrifice our talents, our gifts. But what does Jesus ask? Simply a contribution of what we desire to give at any given moment? No. He asks that we give all. That we would surrender all to Him. It won't be easy. The world will be against us. He gives us a picture of that with Herod and Herodias. He says, here's what's going to happen. Some people, when you go out 
and you share your faith, some will receive you. Some will reject you. But others may be interested. And look at this with Herod for a second. Some may be interested in hearing the truth, but they don't want to do anything about it. Church, that could be like us. Let us not accept the sin of Herod as our own sin. Let us not be ones who are just interested in having our ears tickled by the truth, where we kind of come to church maybe, and this is a, it's a hard word for all of us if we want to be disciples, that we come and we hear the truth. We like going to Bible study or community group. We like to, to read the Word and learn a lot because we love, we're really interested in the truth. But when it comes down to it, are we willing to make the choice that the truth calls us to make? See, Herod had a divided heart. He was conflicted. He liked hearing what John the Baptist had to say, not so much about the Herodias thing, but he was interested. But what did he do with the truth embodied with John the Baptist? He kept him at a distance. He kept him in jail where it was safe. Is it safe to be a disciple of Jesus? No, it's not. Why? Because we carry and represent the truth. We don't have control over how people will receive it or reject it. Some people may be indifferent to it. That could be the most difficult conversation of all. But let us never, church, fall into that trap of kind of liking to hear the truth but never doing anything about it. Are we not called to be not only hearers of the Word, but what? But doers of the Word. See, Herod, in a sense is a reflection of those believers who like to keep learning and hearing the truth, but when it comes down to making a decision, they're not really willing to make that commitment. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your own cross, then you follow me. Look at Mark chapter 8, 34-38. As we compare John the Baptist with Herod and Herodias, look at what it says in Mark 8, 34-38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So we're going to get to this passage in a few weeks. I want to give you a preview because it fits right into what he's saying. Jesus said to them, to the disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his soul for what can a man give in return for his soul for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels is that sobering or what That is the call to discipleship. It is what John the Baptist was called to. He spoke the truth. See, John the Baptist very simply called Herod Antipas and Herodias out on their illicit relationship. And the fact that they both divorced and got married. And John the Baptist said it's immoral against God's law and against the Jewish law as well. And they didn't like it. Church, what do you do when you hear the truth? How do you respond to the truth when you read it in God's Word? Or even when you hear the Word of truth spoken in love, hopefully, by one of your brothers and sisters. Are you willing to receive it? Herod 
was not willing. John the Baptist, he was willing to share it. And he left it in God's hands. He was in jail. And he probably didn't even expect to be killed or beheaded. I don't know. But John the, uh, Herod kept coming back to him, learning from him like his own personal tutor. But again, Herod was keeping him at bay. Keeping him at an arm's length. See, I hope we don't do that with the truth, church. The truth is just kind of out here and we read it once in a while, but we don't want to embrace it. See, the truth is not to just remain out there, but we are to be hearers of the word and doers. We are to be renewed daily by the renewing of our minds. See, we are transformed that way by hearing the truth of God. We learn it and then we surrender it to our heart. That's the call of discipleship. Is we take the truth that we hear and we do something with it. We let it change us. So a disciple is called to embrace that truth. Discipleship requires investment and sacrifice. Martin Luther said this so powerful. He says, A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Herod sacrificed truth to gain the riches of the world. So did his wife Herodias. We don't want to fall into that sin. Sacrifice truth on the altar of preference or pleasure or worldly gain. See, just like Salome, the teenage girl dancing, it's like a picture of sin tempting us. You see what Mark is doing? Just by telling this story, he's painting these very vivid pictures that he hopes the disciples reading this will never forget. Just remember that picture of this this debauchery-filled party in honor of his birthday at the palace of Herod. And this young girl dancing. It's like sin tempting us. It's for a moment. It entices us. It can force us and move us to make rash decisions like he did by saying, I'll give you the half of my kingdom. Have we ever done that? Giving into temptation. Where something is so tempting on the outside, we don't notice the ugly face behind the mask. And in this story, that ugly face behind the mask was Herodias. The one behind the curtain telling her daughter, go dance for them, please them, pleasure them. Be a pleasure to their senses and their eyes. She's doing it all for her personal gain. See, that's what happens when we let pride lead our lives. When we let pride make decisions for us. When we sacrifice the truth for a lie of the enemy. What are we sacrificing? Nothing but the abundant joy and delight in the life of Christ. I'm going to end with a few scriptures. Psalm 1, 1 through 1-3. We know it well. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Don't you want to be like that? And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There is a picture of a disciple. It's the same contrast between that party in the palace and the kingdom of God of hope and peace and joy and restoration and renewal that the disciples went out two by two to preach. We're looking at a picture of the kingdom of God and the kingdom 
of this world. I just say say a few of these quickly. They're not up on the screen, but John eighteen thirty six. Jesus says, "My kingdom is not of this world." Philippians three twenty. Our citizenship is in heaven. First Peter five. You have to suffer a little while, but then the God of all grace will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, it's all worth it to stand for the truth. John 17, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Remember, if people reject you, Jesus says it's okay to shake the dust off your feet, meaning you have planted the seed, you have loved on people. He says it's okay to move on, but you know what? Expect it. Expect things like what happened to John the Baptist to happen. We've heard stories of martyrs throughout church history. It's still happening today. Standing for the truth. Being a disciple. Committing your life to Him. After that acceptance of the free gift of salvation, it's costly. That's the cost of discipleship. Philippians 3, 8-14, through 14, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him even in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or am ready perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Here's the call of discipleship, church. Because Jesus Christ has made me His own. We love that. Brothers, he says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How about that for an encouraging call to be a disciple? Is it safe? Is it secret? It's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be. We're not supposed to live our life in Christ just keeping it safe and keeping that truth to ourselves. It's been said that martyrs don't become martyrs for what they're convicted of. It's for sharing their convictions. See? We have our convictions and our belief and our faith, but when that's safe. But when we begin to share them and to live it out, that's when it can become dangerous. But danger, as they say, what? We can laugh in the face of danger. Why? Because we have Jesus Christ. The victory is won. Are we not victorious in Him? And so we should be like John the Baptist and we preach the truth. We do it in love. And we let God do the rest. So we are to stand for truth, church. This is God's plan. Do you know it? That you are God's plan for bringing the gospel to this world. It's the church. So we are to stand and represent Him. And I end with this illustration of what it really costs and what Jesus is looking for when it comes to being His disciple. There was a young man, a young Christian, who was eager to grow in his faith and to live it out and to really do something for Jesus. 
So this young believer, this young man, he got a piece of paper. And he made a list. Maybe you've done this. He made a list of all the things that he was going to do for God. He wrote down the things that he was going to give up, the things he was going to sacrifice, the places that he was willing to go and to minister. He made a list of all the things in the places, of all the areas of ministry in the church where he'd be willing to serve, to give of his time and his talents, and he was so excited. He took this list to his church, and he placed it on the altar right at the foot of the cross. He was giving it to God. God, this is everything I'm going to do for you. I am so pumped. I'm so on fire for you. He thought at that moment that he would feel joy. But you know what? He began to feel a sense of emptiness. He didn't know why. So he went home and he started adding to the list. He took the list back and he started adding, God, I'm going to do more things. He wasn't yet fulfilled. And he listed all the other things and places that he was going to go and things he was going to do. So he then took this longer list, he went back to his church, he put it down at the altar, but still he felt nothing. So he decided to seek some wise counsel. So he went to his pastor, an older, wiser man than him, and he told him the situation. He made this long list, he said to his pastor, he laid it down at the foot of the cross, surrendered it to Jesus, and said, why am I feeling so empty? And the pastor said, son... Go take a blank sheet of paper, sign your name at the bottom, and put that on the altar at the foot of the cross. What does Jesus expect from us? Everything. Yourself. Everything that makes up who you are. We are not to just give a contribution, but to make a full in life commitment. Are you all in? Now again, I have to make this clear distinction. If you are not, because all at times we have seasons, don't we go through hills and valleys, ups and downs, times when we're when we're really doing well and we're kicking it and we're reading scripture and we're praying and we're doing all those things and we're growing and there's times when we struggle. It doesn't mean that you're not a believer. It doesn't mean that you're gonna lose your salvation. I don't believe that at all. That's why I make that distinction between salvation and discipleship. See, you believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation. You receive that free gift that He paid for. But then the cost to you is discipleship. What kind of commitment are you willing to make for Him? He simply says, you don't have to make a list. It's okay. I know your heart. Just take a blank piece of paper and sign it. And you can lay that down at the foot of the cross. What does it represent? When you sign your name, it's who you are. It's your identity. That's what you're giving over to God. Your very identity in Him. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray our benediction prayer. I'm going to pray over us, church. And, and then what we're going to do is, um, is we're going to have the worship team come and lead us in a time of extended worship. But I want to do this. I just want to give you the opportunity as sort of this is the uh, sort of, you know, close of our service together. If you need to leave and this is sort of the normal time you're used to leaving, then it's, it's fine. And this is sort of the way of me just releasing you. And um, you can go. And I would just ask that you would leave quietly as the music plays. Uh, some people might want to stay and worship and pray. Church, if you see others around you, brothers and sisters, that look like they could use somebody to pray for them, would you go over and do that? Put your arm around them and, and pray for them. And maybe, you know what, maybe during the music and you hear the song playing and you're praying and you recognize you really could use somebody 
to pray for you. Don't be afraid to go over to somebody else and just ask a brother or sister, and would you just pray for me? So take the opportunity, if you'd like, to worship. And during that time, feel free, the freedom that we have in Christ. You can stand, you can raise your hands, you can just sit there quietly and listen. You can close your eyes and pray as you're hearing the worship. Whatever God calls you to do. If you need to go, then that's totally fine as well. But this is just an opportunity that we're offering to stay, to worship, and to pray. And to bring before God your commitment to Him as a disciple. We are to first always start by thanking Him for creating us. Thanking Him for loving us, for saving us through Jesus Christ and Him alone. But then we can ask Him, God, help me. Help me, Holy Spirit, to be your disciple, to be more committed to giving my life, to signing a blank piece of paper, and being willing to give it all. So let me pray for us. Father, as we close our time together, we're thankful even for a story like this. God, it can turn our stomachs at times and give us uh, unpleasant pictures of the way things happened of a young girl being used by her very own mother. May we never think that that's right or acceptable. God, as we see that as a picture of sin in our own lives, may we never be willing to give in to that momentary temptation knowing that there is such an ugliness behind it. Help us to recognize that we have an enemy behind all of those temptations, but help us to recognize further that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. God, thank you for giving us the power as believers through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin, that we are no longer slaves to it. But God, we have then willingly committed ourselves to be slaves to you, slaves to Jesus Christ, slaves in love. And so God, we say thank you, but we ask for your help. We can't do it on our own. We need you, God. We need the truth of your word to transform us from the inside out. We need the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us to convict us when we stray and we need each other. God, we know that we need each other as the church because we are the body and we help each other when we need to be lifted up and we come alongside one another when we're praising you in victory. We mourn when our church mourns. But God, remind us that we do need one another. Help us, Lord, to remain committed every day to you. And when we fall, that we will just ask for forgiveness and let you just lift us up with your gentle, righteous right hand. And and then we can move forward, always striving, striving to be holy as you call us to be holy. Lord, we want to do it because of your love for us. So thank you, God, for even this story. May we learn from it and grow from it. And God bless us now as we leave this place. Some of us choose to stay to worship. May we connect with you in a very special and unique and intimate way. And until we meet again, Lord, encourage us, sustain us, protect and provide. In Jesus' name we pray.